Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Jesus Included Me, the conversation-based podcast devoted to the sharing of personal narratives of inclusion, or lack thereof, or both, in the Catholic Church and society life at large. I'm your host and grateful founder, Sarah Ambrose, and today we have Dr. Claire Gaudiani. Claire served as president and chief executive officer of the New London Development Corporation from 1997 to 2004 and served as president of Connecticut College from 1988 to June 2001. Claire is the director of Henry Luce Foundation, Inc., and was the trustee of Worcester Polytechnic Institute. In addition, Claire has been a professor at New York University and is the author of four books and many articles, including Daughters of the Declaration, which was co-written with her husband, David Burnett, her partner in Gaudani Associates. Hello, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you, Sarah. I was saying this to you privately just a few seconds ago, but you writing this bio for you was quite hard because there is so much to possibly include. Oh, thank you. You were the president at Connecticut College. Yes. And you were the first female president, is that correct? They had female presidents in the early period because initially Connecticut College was an all-women's institution. Oh, was it? So it became co-ed when Harvard, Yale, and Princeton went co-ed. Connecticut College uh, trustees took it co-ed, too, and it's very, very successful co-ed. Brilliant young men and women um, following an institution's goal, which, interestingly enough, was inclusiveness, Hmm. creating opportunity. A group of people started Connecticut College when Wesleyan, which had been co-ed until about 1906 or something, said no more females. We're throwing out all females. We're not accepting any more females. And people in the whole area in New England said, no deal. We're going to start a new women's institution. And they did. And it was very strongly based on an honor code and on very extensive opportunities in economics Mm -hmm. and international economics and science, fields that women weren't going into in those days. Mm -hmm. And we had some of the very first PhD females in those fields teaching at Khan. Women who who were in their 40s and 50s and 60s when I was a student there, and who had been all over Africa studying African economics and African government when women didn't make those kinds of journeys. No, under no circumstances. Mm -hmm. Women could perhaps teach English or music, but not economics, and then go to countries in Africa. So it was very much a forward-looking institution. So it was wonderful to see it turn co-ed in 1968 and just take the world by storm. I didn't tell you this, but uh, I'm from Connecticut. I grew up there, and I had had no idea about the history of this college. Yes, it's really quite remarkable. And so it's turned out um, amazing women. um, Yeah. Pat Wald, who's one of the premier judges 
federal judges in the whole country, mm -hmm. was a Connecticut College graduate, I think in the 40s, and she rose to this level of uh, excellence in her career. So you can go through a whole set of amazing fields and find that the women at the top of the field went to Connecticut College yeah. wow. and developed a way of being professionals and being very focused on integrity, mm -hmm. on honor, mm -hmm. honor code. And so it was a great privilege to return to my alma mater as a 41-year-old president who'd never been a dean and never been a provost and had two teenage children. I was the first married female who was present, yeah. president of the institution. And Gosh. at the time, 1988, um, the time I was appointed, there were nine other women in the country who were married, had children, and were presidents of secular institutions. Nine. Nine out of like 3,000 colleges and universities. Now that's changed in the last 25, 30 right. years, but um, it was still a breakthrough kind of thing to do in 88, which isn't that long. Ago. No. Crazy. Wow. That is. No, so you also were educated at Connecticut College? Yes. Okay. And for what, undergrad? Graduate? My undergrad. I did my PhD at Indiana University. Oh. And that's where I met David. And we fell in love and married and finished our PhDs together and uh, had our first son about um, two years after we married. And then our daughter a couple of years later, and I was just finishing my dissertation a couple of months before she was born. So life comes together. Yeah, it does. Somehow. Sometime before 30, the pieces often come together. Yeah. And could we talk a little bit about um, your newest book? Sure, sure. I've actually done 14 books in all. Oh I've done four since uh, 2004 on philanthropy, because after I finished my career in academic life, I was a professor for 25 years, then I became college president, and I did that for 13 years. Uh, and then was at Yale uh, Law School for three years, wow, focusing okay. on writing the first book on philanthropy and the economy. And it was the first time there was a book written that looked at the impact of philanthropy, American generosity, on the way our market economy developed. Wow. Which was totally different from the way market yeah. economies developed in European countries. Definitely. We have everything in common with them. We have Judeo-Christian culture. We have uh, humanities, Western humanities studies. Mm -hmm. We have the Enlightenment and the rise of science, all in common with European countries. Mm -hmm. But the development of our economy was uniquely influenced by this magical development of the concept of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And so I did a book on that called The Greater Good, How Philanthropy Built the American Economy and Can Save Capitalism. So I just did a lecture on that subject in California a couple of days ago, so it's still um, a popular, re I get many requests to speak about that book, even 
you know, more than 10 years after it was published. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. Isn't that interesting? It's fantastic. And it still, still is absolutely correct from yeah. the economic standpoint, yeah. as well as the philanthropic standpoint. And a lot of people, a lot of Americans don't realize that the whole pharmaceutical industry was started from a gift that a donor made to a couple of scientists who were able to do the research to figure out how what they had in their Petri dish could actually change the future of human life on the planet. Mm. Those two young men had a mold and they had the opportunity to do the research. They were given the money from a donor and they told the donor that there was a million to one chance that it would work out to be anything important. Mm. But the donor said to them, what would happen if it did work out? <laughs> and the young men said, well, it would transform the impact of infectious disease on human life. And the donor said, a million to one sounds like great odds. <laughs> and he gave them the money. It's John Rockefeller. Two years later, penicillin. Wow. And that's the beginning. First of all, it's the end of Staphylococcus mm -hmm. and Streptococcus. Mm -hmm. The average age of death, when that discovery was made, the average age of death in America was 43 mm -hmm. because of infectious diseases. Right, yeah, yeah. But once you say, oh, no, no, this baby, this young mother who just gave birth, this little kid isn't going to die from this strep infection. Mm -hmm. No, no, they're going to be fine in a week. What? Changes everything. All of a sudden, within less than a decade, there's a transformation in the average lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. From a gift. More than that, all the other antibiotics grew out of the research on penicillin. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting to put about 70 or 80 stories just like that, the whole rise of imaging right? Yeah. MRIs yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. All of that had the same kind of history. Really? And so a whole industry grows up, the pharmaceutical industry. Pfizer was a chemical industry. They were making chemicals. They weren't making pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. because they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But suddenly an industry that is now world dominant and transforming, look what's happened to AIDS and HIV AIDS and so many other conditions because we can do pharmaceutical research. Mm -hmm. And that was the result of one gift from a person who said, million to one odds, that's great, I'll take it. The same thing with imaging. Nobody has exploratory surgery anymore where they open you up to see why you have a pain there and they make a cut in you and look around. Yeah. No, they run you under. Yeah. A camera. Mm -hmm. And they get a picture and they say, it's nothing, it's just a this or a that, you're fine. Or, we want to we do something about this because it's early and we can save you. All that, and all the other imaging has come out of that same single gift to three young Germans who couldn't get money in Germany for their research. They couldn't get it from corporations. 
And they came to the United States of America and they sat with a donor because they were told there are crazy people who will give you money and not expect anything back. Mm -hmm. they don't, they're not investing in you and they want a profit. Right. They're giving you the money forever. They hope it works. Let me know in a couple of years. Wow. That's who we are right. in this country. We have to remember that. How did this become such a topic of interest for you? Well, of course, as a college president, yeah. I was like the teeny-weeny spec person version of the young scientists. Mm -hmm. I would have an amazing idea that as, for instance, Vietnam was making connections with the United States for the first time mm -hmm. since the end of the Vietnam War, right. the first time that John McCain went to meet with the people who had tortured him, I said, we must send American students to study in Vietnam with Vietnamese students, right. and we must send American faculty to study and teach with Vietnamese faculty. Mm -hmm. and that felt like an amazingly good idea for undergraduates mm -hmm. who would be part of changing the thinking mm -hmm. on the past mm -hmm. and transforming a future yeah. and helping faculty yeah. to understand that what they'd always learned, and in the case of the two men who, from Connecticut College, whom I was actually able to send to do this, to be professors in Vietnam for a semester, one of them had been a soldier and one of them had been a CO. Mm. So they were going to change the rest of their lives yeah. because of this experience. But how could I make that happen? Well, I needed a gift. Mm. So I went to one of my trustees and I told this wonderful husband and wife combination about my crazy idea. And they said, well, what do you need to make it happen? And I said, well, the faculty are willing to do it, but we need about $25,000. And as I was continuing to talk about it, one of them took out a check and wrote the check. And I went home from dinner with the money I needed to start the program. And I suddenly realized that that was very early in my career as a president. I was able to fund a $1.5 million chair, the very first chair to honor Elie Wiesel. Okay. There was a I started a chair in Judaic studies. A lot of America's best colleges and universities were strongly anti-Semitic mm -hmm. when I was in school in the 60s and certainly before that. Yeah. And I thought, what is God calling me to do? To fix the past and make the future new. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to just teach Judaic studies. We're going to have a chair in Judaic studies. Wow. And we'll be able to bring an amazing person to that chair. And everybody told me it would be impossible to name a chair for somebody else like Elie Wiesel. They'd want to name the chair for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Major Giver. Uh, and my own development staff said, that's impossible that somebody will say, sure, name it for someone else. And I said, well, you know, then I'll have to find 15 people to give me 100,000. Mm -hmm. But this is the dream. And I went to one person, 
and I told her the one thing we wanted to do, and I said I was going to speak to 15 people, so I wanted her to just consider a small, you know, initial contribution. She was so important, I thought it would make her make everything easier if she would start it off, and I would come to Alabama and meet with her, and she said, no, 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 I know what I want to do. And my development staff had said, never accept a gift over the phone. It'll never be the same amount of money as if you go and see the person. Yeah. So I said, oh, no, 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 I want to come to Alabama in July. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, you don't. You want me to give you, she said, look, let me just tell you, I want to do the whole thing. And I had a, so many experiences like that, that I said, nobody knows about this kind of giving, yeah. this transformational giving. So I began to get the idea as I did some initial checking and poking, you know, how did this thing come to the United States and how did this and how did that and how did the next thing, how did medical schools get started? I had, I had all these questions and the more research I did, the more people I found who were just like my trustees. And I said, you know what? More trustees have to be told how special they are. That people like them, generous the way they're generous, gave us penicillin and gave us imaging and gave us, and so on. I could tell you 150 stories, which yeah. I promise not. <laughs> but, but it seemed to me that I had to just, you know, finish my presidency and go off to a beautiful place where I could study with a spectacular library mm -hmm. focused on philanthropy, yeah. as the Yale Law School has and is distinguished for having. And I went there and I spent three years in a library with my nose in the book rooms and yeah. turned out the first book and then the second book and the third book. And then finally, um, when I looked at all the research, I began to ask myself, but how did the culture of giving begin? Mm -hmm. So that people who were very, 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 very wealthy in the United States, like people who were very, 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 very wealthy in Europe, didn't do this kind of giving. Where did it come from? Yeah. And of course, when I, when I did that research, that was the story of how women initiated the whole nonprofit sector in United yeah. States culture. That doesn't surprise me, but... Huh. But nobody knows. Yeah. And nobody teaches you in fifth no. grade. No. And they teach you where the railroads came from, but in a crazy way, just as important as the Transcontinental Railroad mm -hmm. was the invention of the nonprofit sector, mm. which transformed yeah. the economy and the social life yeah. of this democracy yeah. in a way that is just breathtaking when you actually read all the stories and you understand who's our mama and who are yeah. our daddies and mamas mm -hmm. past in history yeah. and wherever people came from when they got here or the great people who were here in Native American societies and people who were forced to come here we're all united in having amazing people who stepped up and participated in the nonprofit 
sector. Yeah. I grew up having um, my aunt always telling me that giving was the most powerful thing in the world. That's right. And um, when I was researching you earlier and thinking about leading an academic life through giving and then giving to the people who have given. Right. It really transforms the lives of all of us. Yeah. The very first gift of this sort was by a woman who gave her money, very, very wealthy woman, who didn't have children, mm-hmm. 1639. Wow. How long ago was that? When the president of Harvard went to see her, and by, I think, 1643, ultimately, she made the first gift to create scholarships for the children of farmers and butchers and candlestick makers Hmm. to be able to go to the only and first college in the first colonies was Harvard. Hmm. The first bunch of years from 1636 till this gift, only the children of wealthy families could pay the tuition. And they began to realize that they were missing many smart people mm. whose families just couldn't spend that kind yeah, of money on a child's education. Yeah. So Lady Molson was approached by the president of Harvard, and she gave the first gift. And it still is growing in the Harvard endowment mm. from 1643 oh on. Wow. But that gift didn't just educate hundreds and hundreds of boys whose parents had no capacity to give him those opportunities. Those boys went back to their villages and they were ministers and lawyers and even the version of doctors that existed then. They were the people. They were teachers so they could start high schools when people didn't have high schools. So they were transformers in those communities. And less than 10 years after those boys began to graduate and come back, the farmers and the butchers and the candlestick makers got together town by town and they said, you know, we've received a gift that has created opportunities Mm -hmm. and built prosperity. And we feel grateful. What should we do? And someone said, why don't we promise a certain amount of what each of us makes in a year and send it back to the college so that we can provide some of the candles? Well, we could provide some of the meat that the children and the the young people and the faculty need. Well, we could send bushels of wheat and corn, and they called it the corn tax. And it was really the first annual fund, of course. But they did it out of an inspiration from gratitude. From gratitude, And what I've just laid out is what I teach as the virtuous cycle Mm. that philanthropy causes. And so if you think about a clock, and you look at where 12 is, Mm -hmm. 
think of a gift happening there. Mm -hmm. And the gift goes to three, and it creates opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity moves around to six and creates prosperity that changes everything for those people who receive it. And the prosperity inspires gratitude, mm -hmm. which happens at nine on the clock, right? Mm -hmm. And the gratitude inspires another gift. Yeah. And that circle keeps going and going and going. It's really an engine mm -hmm. of productivity. Right. It's an engine of prosperity. It's an engine of gifts and gratitude, and it makes a society different. Yeah. Because suddenly, people were giving scholarships, not just Lady Molson scholarships, but other people said, other wealthy people whose kids were studying, said, well, we could certainly, you know, we want more young people from low-income families to come from our town here in Chatham or here, in, and they started to give gifts. So the inspiration didn't just come to the families whose sons were given scholarships, but right. from other people who right. saw the good example. Right. And what happened? We have a country yeah. whose people invest in other people's children. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, when I talk about this in Italy and Germany and France and England, my books have been translated, uh, and I go there to speak in all the time. There'll be someone in the audience who'll raise their hand and say, I don't understand. You mean that you're telling me that for hundreds of years, Americans deposit money into colleges and universities so that other people's kids get to compete with their kids? And I said, absolutely, because of course they compete in school. But those kids who get that scholarship support become the pediatricians of the grandchildren of the people who gave the money. Right. They become the lawyers. They become the ministers and priests. This is making a society yeah. by using the gifts that God has given equally to all groups of people yeah. and making sure that those gifts get to develop the way God has intended. Yes. And when we do that, we get blessed. Yeah. And everybody is blessed, not just the families no. of the recipients of the money. Yeah. And I say to them, in the United States, if I were speaking to people off in the United States, I'd tell them that probably 50% of the people who are their doctors, lawyers, the scientists developing the immunotherapy for the leukemias they are getting, or those people all have scholarships mm -hmm. that came from people you don't know. Yeah. But you know what? That philanthropy makes you a recipient mm -hmm. because you're getting the loving services yeah. of that person who might not be there. Right. And now we're doing this for people all over the world. Yeah who want to come here yeah. and become scientists or go to medical school or become teachers and transformers, become dancers and musicians and give us what we couldn't have gotten right. if there hadn't been 
those acts of generosity mm -hmm. from people we don't know, but now we're getting the gifts they make. Yeah. What a way to live. What a way to live. And I was just actually speaking to Father Tony, I'm going to butcher his last name, Chiro. Choro. Choro. Yeah. Um, about giving it and receiving and how the human being is responsible for both. Right. And what happens when we aren't able to fully give and receive how we become disruptive. Right. And, um, but when we are able to fully do both, it's like an engine. That's right. We're well, this here. is this, this virtuous cycle, yeah. I call it, this virtuous engine. And once you get it started, um, children can be invited to share some of their Christmas gifts, even after they open them, mm. you know? And we do that with our kids. We've done it since they were little. Which of the things you've gotten uh, are you willing to bring to church for New Year's mm. and make sure that another child has the opportunity to keep? Because you've gotten quite a bunch yeah. of things. Yeah. And maybe we don't need to keep all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And they learn how to love someone they don't even know. Yeah. And they, of course, learn to love themselves that way. Yes. And other people praise them, and they learn that giving is joyful, it's not sad. Yeah. I was also speaking to him about the idea of giving what you have, because at the end of the day... Right, that's what's most important. That's what's most important, but so the idea... Might be a nickel, but who cares if right. that's what you have if that's to what you have. Right. But to be able to love another, you must love yourself. And right. so... I mean, it's a win-win situation. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is such a profound element of what Jesus taught us. Yes. This is the deep, deeply important element of our Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it was transforming at the time that Jesus made these teachings. Yeah. People, you know, weren't thinking in these deep ways. They were willing to give to people in their own families in their own tribes, but not people outside the tribe. Mm -hmm. And what Jesus said in the story of the Good Samaritan, that was exactly a story yeah. about giving outside the tribe. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. I mean, he, he could have made it one, you know, it could have made it all about Jewish people, but he didn't. He specifically made it the Samaritan. Yeah whom everybody hated, mm -hmm. who yet was loving and caring. And we all admire mm -hmm. for 2,000 years. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Inclusion. Right. Yeah. And including everybody. Including There's everybody. nobody, right, who's yes. not included. And that's this enormous power. Mm -hmm. And so whatever mistakes the human elements in the church makes and there are a bunch of them. They're always aside. Mm -hmm. they're, they're connected to the humanity of all of us, like we all share in the mistake of our wonderful Adam and Eve stories. We have to all believe that if each of us had been there, we would have made the mistakes mm -hmm. of self-indulgence mm -hmm. and self-importance. Um, in the same way, we want to deal with these errors and correct them vigorously, but none of that separates us 
from why we are passionately grateful for the faith that we share and the opportunity to keep the engine of virtue mm -hmm. that it teaches us yeah. moving vigorously in the yeah. world we're a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Since we bring up faith, can we talk a little bit about your relationship with the faith and how you, you grew up with it? And sure. I grew up in a very Catholic family. My mother's parents, my beloved grandparents, I never knew my father's parents died before I was born, but my mother's parents were very close to me as a little kid, and my grandmother always had a rosary in her apron pocket, like the grandmothers of bazillions of other people. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's not distinctive. Um, but she was always a person who could solve problems. Mm -hmm. And she would solve problems by bringing a small prayer and a small piece of chocolate to whatever my father was very strict. If he was correcting me for something, it was usually slightly too vigorously. And she would take me by the hand when it was all over, and take me with her to her special cupboard where she had very special tiny chocolate bars. <laughs> and we would say a Hail Mary on the walk from wherever the disaster had occurred. Usually I was being corrected in the living room. And we would walk her the length of her wonderful home to her special cupboard with the gold key. And we would say Hail Mary on our way. By the time we got there, we were right at the Amen, and she would open the cloth, the little uh, cupboard, and take out a gold box that had these little Swiss chocolate bars in gold. And of course, my heart was beating so hard by the time I saw them that I had totally forgotten about whatever correction, <laughs> and I'm sure I was going right back to whatever. And there she had the solution to the problem. And so her goodness was always based in her love of the Blessed Mother and her prayerfulness. And she raised six children, all of whom uh, have maintained spectacular faith. Um, my mother, the youngest, um, is a five rosary a day lady. She is 95 and in spectacular health, goes to the gym three times a week, reads three books a week, and um, deeply, deeply spiritual. And so uh, I'm the oldest of six, and the challenge for me was not in childhood. We said the rosary together almost every weekday when we got home from school, and that was very, very important. Um, and we went to Mass, of course, every Sunday, and we had all the sacraments, so I had all the advantages. I was in Catholic grammar school and Catholic high school with spectacular nuns, whom I pray to uh, a number of them. I try to choose one or two by name each day when I pray so that I don't just say the nuns who educated me, but I say especially yes. Sister Norice and Sister Rich, Mary Richard today, and then it'll be Sister Paul of the Cross and Sister Aquin the next day, so that their numerous names uh, remain present for me. So that's pretty boring childhood, I guess, in terms of faith. But I had a difficulty with the way 
some of the teachings in the church were going on as I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s. And I was had a wonderful priest, Father Quentin Duncan, who was willing to meet with me and work through with me the idea that I had that no one could tell me I had committed a sin. It might look to other people like I had committed a sin, but sin is in the will. This was from like a sophomore in high school, and he was willing to listen to me and talk to me, and of course he said, which still works, um, that you have to be careful and energetic about making your mind understand the teaching of the church. And if you've done a careful job of doing that, then you increasingly are more able to say, I don't think that was a sin. I didn't mean to do the wrong thing. It happened. You know, I slept through the last mass. Well, maybe you want to think about, you know, could if you set a, an alarm clock, could you have gone, chosen an earlier mass, and what are you going to do next Sunday? But I wanted to be sure that no one could tell me that I had committed a sin, that sin was in the will. And he turned out to give me a framework mm -hmm. for how to be a person of conscience and a person of responsibility, mm -hmm. and not just take everything, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, right. and you finally say, you know what, this is silly. Yeah. It was always getting deeper for me to own my soul, which of course we all must do. Yeah. We have to save our own souls. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm always grateful for the way he took me seriously yeah. in my, I don't want to call my intellectual youth, but it was something, some version of that. Yeah. It was past the catechism yeah. and, and into responsibility for my own life and my spiritual life and salvation. I guess the most, it was easy for me to maintain my Catholicism at college because I went to a non-Catholic college and the first thing I wanted to do was start a Catholic group oh who gosh. would all go to Mass together. I went to Mass um, at a little church very near the campus so I could go to Mass often during the week. Um, but I thought, why shouldn't all of the students meet once a month and be Catholic students together. Mm. And in my sophomore year, I got permission uh, from the college to have Mass on campus. Fantastic. Which had never been allowed before. Wow. It was a very secular institution. They didn't do religious stuff. But the dean said, fine, once a week on a Sunday, you know, that would be all right. And I went and found one of the local parish priests who said, well, of course, I'll make time to come up. I'll fit it in between. He was so kind because he had a parish to worry about. He had many more priests to help him then. Um, and he said, the only thing is I need permission from the bishop. And I said, well, what do I have to do? And he said, you're going to have to go and ask the bishop. So I got somebody to drive me all the way to Hartford from New London, Connecticut. And I made a time with the bishop. And he was very lovely. He had me come in and sit down and ask me what my question was. And I asked him for permission for Father Konopka 
to say mass on my campus in a room in the basement of the chapel. And he said, well, that's not possible. And I said, hmm, why would that not be possible? I have the priest and the space. And he said, well, because you chose to go to a secular institution. And if you had wanted mass on campus, you should have chosen a Catholic college. Now, to be fair to him, this was 1963. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, of course, heartbroken. Mm -hmm. But I went home and I started a group called Eve, Y-V-E-S. And um, it was a group of Catholic women on the campus, because we were all women students. Mm -hmm. And we had a meeting once a month, and we went to figure out how to go to Mass together. And we rented a van, and we made the best of it we could uh, to keep our faith alive. And of course, we invited people to campus, like Michael Novak and Michael Harrington, Harrington a very well-known Catholic layman. Um, and they came and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students showed up to hear them talk about the needs of the poor and the way Christians ought to be responding. So I had a different role. It wasn't what I thought it would be to have Mass on campus, but it was to make Catholicism lively and intellectually active. What became complicated after college uh, was graduate school when I very quickly met David Burnett, who has been my husband for just, just 50 years. And I was in the middle of a PhD program. We both met at Indiana University studying for our PhDs. And I was clicking along, taking the same courses as everyone else. In fact, several semesters I took an extra course. And when we fell in love and decided to marry, we both realized that with my family's history, I would have six children in the next eight years, unless there were some drastic arrangements made. Uh, and I didn't know any that were currently popular with my faith. Um, on the other hand, this was in, hold your breath, 1967-1968. And the church had a commission of lay and religious members of the church studying this issue. And all the reports were that the wisdom of this group would tell the Pope that for married people, a pill that just affected the timing of ovulation would not be offensive to the Catholic Church. It would not terminate life. It would just pause ovulation. And if there was no ovulation, there couldn't be any insemination, in which case there was no fertilized ovum, in which case there was nothing to be harmed. So that's the knowledge I was given. I spoke to my 84-year-old at the time grandmother, and she said, you must make your decision for the life you will lead 
for Almighty God. And the church will be there for you in ways that you can't understand now. Now, that was before the decision had been made. Mm -hmm. But I, of course, took the warnings or the advice of the people who knew what was going on in the commission, and I made serious inquiries to find that out. And the generous advice of my grandmother, which was finish your PhD so you can be a Catholic laywoman in a powerful position. Mm -hmm. And I went to my doctor and I got my pills and David and I were married on June 29, 1968. And we had a beautiful nuptial mass and I began taking my pills assiduously and we were in Lausanne on our honeymoon in Switzerland when Humane Vitae came out, making everything I was doing against the law of the church. And I had to decide whether I would stop being a Catholic and continue taking my pills and continue my PhD program, or whether I stop taking the pills and probably drop out of my PhD program and um, not be able to have the life that I deeply felt for various reasons uh, that I was called to. And I, it just seemed to me that neither of those decisions was good. And I determined on the wisdom, uh, more in the direction of my grandmother, that I needed to make a decision in my time, which ultimately wouldn't be locked by 1968, but would be locked in my ability to affect people during the course of maybe the next whatever I was going to have, 40 or 50 or 60 years, and that those lives that I could affect were the lives that I had to think about. So I continued taking the pills, remaining a Catholic, and <laughs> finished my PhD on time with the rest of my class. There, I was the first female with a child to finish a PhD in the program. But I was not only the first female, I was the first Catholic female. And to be a mother and a Catholic, to know the Mother of God, to know the Blessed Sacrament, to know Mass, not only on Sundays, but often during the week. Um, to know all of that, to know St. Clair and St. Teresa of Avila and St. Therese of Lisieux and St. Catherine of Siena, to be able to bring all those women to my life and to my students, to my staff and classmates. Um, I have and now my parishioners as I teach as a catechist. I believe that that's what God called me to do, to have both and to see the risks that you have to take in life if you want to try to listen to Almighty God. Very often I told a priest in confession that I was using birth control and um, just I said I don't consider that I'm committing a sin I consider that I am accepting God's intention for my life in this world that I'm a part of, that he's given me certain skills to act in. But I was straightforward. I tried not to be deceptive. And that's where I still live. Not on, <laughs> after all these years, not on 
birth control anymore, but very grateful that I was able to time my first pregnancy. And then I was very ill after my first pregnancy. And the following year, they told me, you can never have another baby. You're very sick. It could kill you if you got pregnant again. Whoops. So, of course, we were very careful, and I stayed on the pill. And uh, then we prayed a great deal, and we prayed very hard to have another child and that I would get better. And by God's grace, I did get better. And I conceived a wonderful little girl five years after the birth of my son. And she's perfect, and she has become an international human rights lawyer and has spent her career, she's 43, um, with the responsibility of five African countries saving lives of people who were going to be killed in the prisons they were in, write them asylum documents that would get them out of the prisons, and then she would raise money for their families to be able to go to the country where she had gotten them asylum. So she has saved, I, don't, I just can't tell you how many lives, particularly of LGBTQ people who in some countries in Africa are subject to execution for being gay. But she's also saved people because they were in prison for opposing a dictator, and uh, she was able to get them out and save them. She's been a human rights lawyer for 15 years. And she's the mother of three who are beautiful children of God. So she was meant to be even more than I was meant to be and to have the career in the corporate sector and the academic sector that uh, my degree and my experience and my faith uh, fundamentally have permitted me to live. Yeah, absolutely. Maria is your daughter's name. Right. Okay. Maria Elizabeth. Maria Elizabeth. She's my visitation moment, right? When Mary went to visit Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. So she's my Maria Elizabeth dedication. That's beautiful. We have a beautiful faith, and we need to embrace it with standards and expectations, but mainly with love. Yeah. Because that's how it embraces us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, and your narrative is so gorgeous. Only two other questions that I end every segment with that I'll ask. And the first one is, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Um, That's a beautiful question. Um, I see the eyes of love and mercy. I see the face of gift that has changed the history of human life on the planet. There isn't a more powerful face or voice, and each of us must embrace the continuity and the power of that face in everyone we see. And lastly, when Jesus looks at you, what would you like the world to know he sees? A worker. Yes. Just a worker. A worker bee. Yeah. Never tired and never discouraged. Not in charge. Just working. And that is certainly apparent. <laughs> um, I've had so many opportunities to succeed 
but I've had a couple of things that didn't work that I should count as failures. No matter how many asks I made, I wasn't able to make them work. And I'm still working on one of them, and I have a new chance out of um, the blue again after 15 years wow. of probably 300 asks. And I know how to ask for money, yeah. and I know how to frame it, and who to ask, and I've gotten enthusiasm, and this is too complicated, but it's great. I hope you find somebody, and uh, failure. So now I have another chance, mm. and what I've done in the last year is I've said to Almighty God, okay, instead of my being the project director, which is what it says on my <laughs> stationery and my business card. Uh, I said, I'll be the administrative assistant and you be the project director. And I will follow along as you open doors, but I won't keep trying to find the doors. I'll wait for you to send me a door that I can open with your help. And so today I have the most helpful door that I've worked on this morning, opening, finding the right key. Oh and maybe it'll work. Yeah. And maybe I'll fail again. But I think you have to be willing to fail. Yes. And to keep trying as though it was your first effort. And to be willing to let God show you the door. That's right. And to let go. Yeah. Um, we have to look at the face of Jesus and say, I hear you saying, let me do it. <laughs>